Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to dive right into the text. We are in 2 Samuel 8, but you'll want to go to 2 Samuel 7. Well, actually, if you just have the handouts, 8 will help you. But just mark the particular verses as we walk our way to it. So pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to seek you in prayer and knowing that your throne of grace is always available to us, that we could boldly go in confidence, knowing that we have a high priest who is tempted in every way yet without sin. And so, Lord, I pray today for every person here, myself included, that you speak and speak profoundly. And, Lord, let it not just be something where we could say, well, okay, that's good information. I'll be more ready to tell someone else it. But, Lord, that it really make its way into our hearts and let you do the work you want to do. So have your way now, Lord, I pray. Let this be really, really sweet time. And may we hear you and know you and love you more. Please, draw us into a deep and meaningful relationship with you. Please. We commit tonight to you and pray, Lord, that you would move in a life-changing landmark way in each of our lives tonight. In Jesus' name. Lord, please also anoint me with your Holy Spirit. Immerse me that you would be seen and come upon me that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. This is your time, and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I was saying tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. That's always key. So, I'm getting to that point where I just may need even glasses. So here is a... I got these, I got these particular glasses because I thought they would make me look smart like Ben Franklin. How's that? Can you see that? I'm embracing. See, I'm going down swinging on the age thing, but here's one of those here's one of those places where I really don't mind it. Okay. Now, we're in 2 Samuel 8, and this is David's response. And you learn an awful lot about a person when they have a plan and that plan goes awry. They go, and especially when it's with the very best intentions, and that's certainly David's case. Uh, in chapter 7... We, I'm going to point out four things on our way to chapter 8, because chapter 8 is going to be David's reaction to what God did, obviously, in chapter 7. Look at chapter 8 and look at the first word. Actually, I guess it should probably say the first two words. Notice how chapter 8 starts with the words, after this. After this tells me that obviously something must have happened of some form of great consequence in chapter 7 to lead us to a place that after this is going to make him do what it takes place in chapter 8. So in chapter 7, in the simplest sense, let me point this out. We, first of all, we started with David's condition in verse 1. In verse 1 it said, It came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies all around. It started with this, that David was in a place of great safety by chapter 7, verse 1. And I can remind you, this is the this that is the after this in chapter 8. David was at a place of great safety and, in essence, of rest. No enemy around him was a threat. It didn't mean the enemy wasn't there. It didn't mean that the enemy didn't exist. But what it meant was that the enemy was no threat. David, however, though, recognizing the enemy still exists and recognizing that though the Lord had given him rest, he turns now internally. Though he recognizes now he doesn't have to, for the moment, focus on his borders, he wants to make sure that the core is strong. And I find that when you find assault happening from without, you go and you handle that. You go and someone's at the door and they're trying to get at your family, you take down the guy at the door. But once that goes down, then you go back and you check on your family to start seeing how to make sure that they're okay. And that's basically what David's doing. He refuses to coast. And let me just make this clear that David wants to continue in his growth and his growth towards God, even at those moments when, to be honest, things were just basically good. And he compared his situation to God's situation, and it didn't seem to add up to him. David was in this place of great comfort, and yet God was still camping in his front yard. God was still under a tent, and he just didn't like that. He wanted to build God a house. So we go from David's condition to David's ambition. In verse 2, it says that the king spoke to a guy we're introduced to now named Nathan the prophet. And it says, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside ten curtains. David is still hungry to draw near to God, and he wants to do this by putting God next door. 
David has already seen God in this tent, but David wants this, a permanent thing. Now, consider that in our lives, because we've all seen people, if you will, that are in what I might call second quadrant people. Remember when Jesus talks about the sower that goes to sow seed, and some seed falls on the wayside, and then some falls upon stony ground, some falls upon thorny ground, if you will, and then some falls upon good soil. And we've seen those that you've shared Jesus with, if you will, and they're like, yeah, whatever, get out, you're stupid, you know, you're whatever. And then off they go, kind of like the pavement, like he speaks of in the first quadrant. This is Matthew 13, by the way, the first of seven parables. In the second parable, he tells us that there's a thorny ground, I'm sorry, a stony ground, and much of Israel is laden with rock. And so in this terrace farming that kind of looks like steps, you find that often there's places where the soil isn't very deep. And so the seed does land, it does take root for a moment, it does sprout up real quickly, but it's an extremely shallow response. And Jesus then says, as he uses the parable, he says that the sun comes and scourges it because it doesn't have the root that is necessary to sustain it when that heat comes. And then he compares that to not just persecution, and it's important to note this, not just persecution, but persecution because of the word. And it's one thing for you to call yourself a Christian, but it is another thing to be a Bible-believing Christian. That's a threat. And I've often said, people don't seem to have a problem with you becoming a Christian until they discover you became a real one. And somewhere down the line in that, in those moments when people say, do you really believe? And you know, once it starts like that, the suns come out. You really believe that God created everything in seven days? No, I believe God created everything in six days. You need to read your Bible. You know, do you really believe that God populated the whole planet from Adam and Eve? Well, yeah, I didn't think He started that way, but ultimately populated the whole planet from the three sons of Adam, or from the three sons of Noah. You should read your Bible. You know, well, who was Cain's wife? Who cares who Cain's wife is? First of all, she's married. Why are you asking about her? Second of all, she's dead. So what difference does it make to you? And you realize, people, oh, do you really believe Jesus is the only way? Yes. Well, it all depends. The only way to what? Well, I believe all gods meet at the same place. I say, I believe all gods but one meet at the same place. Wasn't that closed-minded? Well, can you be right? If you actually are completely convinced I'm wrong, then you're closed-minded. Let's just be honest. Now, all of that said... David has this ambition and he wants to keep, he wants to make God a permanent place, not just a tent in front of his house. And the people in that second quadrant that have that experience where they kind of shoot up really quick and then you just watch them and wow, we call them firecracker Christians and they explode and things seem so cool. But then when the persecution comes, they fizzle off. It's like God came and he camped for a little bit. But then kind of like when the kind of, you know, Christian, you know, Reading Festival was over or whatever, Glastonbury, then all of a sudden they went back to their house and everything kind of resumed as it was before. But David doesn't want that. David started with his condition of being a place of rest, of safety around him. So then when David takes that condition and moves it to an ambition to the one, let's solidify, let's make sure God is the landmark in this place. And then from that, what we find is, though he introduces this concept to Nathan, the prophet, who, by the way, is introduced in verse two, Nathan goes, that sounds like a great idea. But then God has to correct him. Because God is not going to allow his kingdom to be built on anyone else's blood but his own. So with that, the third thing that is, it went from David's condition to David's ambition to, you will, God's provision. And now God says in verse 11 that the Lord said, he now will make you a house. David, you want to build me one, and I'm really flattered, really blessed by your heart to do that. But let me do this instead. Instead of you actually kind of parking me close to you, I'm going to set this up and then I'm going to pull you into me. And I really like that. Hear that. When we came to Christ, we're aware of the fact God had to do the work. Dead people don't make themselves alive. But then somewhere down the line, we started to take up this idea. Now, I'm not talking about being a slacker, but we took up this idea that now it was our responsibility to keep this relationship fresh. Now, we do have a response to it, but God is always the initiator and we're the responder. There's the beauty in that. And what happens, we said it this way, if you, you know, if you have to fight to get it, you have to fight to keep it. 
If you have to fight to get a relationship with someone, you're going to have to fight to keep that relationship with them. If you have to doll yourself up to win someone, you're going to have to have to stay dolled up to keep them. But we were nasty and filthy and sinners and enemies and dead in our trespasses and sin when Jesus saved us. So the good news is we certainly didn't have to doll ourselves up to be wanted. And then once we got saved, we're like, now, what do I have to do to keep them? Well, you certainly don't want to stay a sinner or his enemy or dead in your trespasses and sin. But you want to respond to his love. And what God says is, I love your ambition, David, but you need to recognize it's my provision that's going to make this happen. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. And I want to be closer to the Lord. And what the Lord says is, well, then let me draw you. What I'm asking for is surrender. A willingness to obey my word. Because that comes with surrender. Well, with that, finally, we get from God's provision then to David's decision. Now, think about it. David says, let me build you a house. And God did say no. But he said, in essence, he didn't really say no. He said, instead of, I have a better plan. And his plan then was, let me build that house. And he tells us this, that David's decision, or if you will, his response to God then saying, I have this, is that he actually doesn't go to pouting or to pity partying, but he goes to praising. And he does so in verse 18 of chapter 7 when he says that he sat before the Lord and he went, Lord, who am I? What is my house that you've brought me even this far? But if this wasn't enough, look at what you've done. You've not only blessed me in this moment, but because you're a God of permanence and eternity, you're a God who's blessed me way beyond what I can see. You really are in this for the long haul. Then in verse 22, he turns from who in the world am I to who in the world are you? You know who you are? You are awesome. Or as the word we have is great, O Lord God, and there's none like you. Then by verse 23, he says, and not only who am I and who are you, but who are your people? He says, who's like your people, like Israel, the one nation upon the earth whom God went to redeem for himself a people? Now, uh, let me just say this. A healthy response to God's work is always, and to God's promises, is to view ourselves in light of Him. We always, from this point on, have to review ourselves. If there is going to be a mirror, there better be a mirror that is shaped like Jesus. Because if I don't, I will see my... I have to see my victories in light of God's power, and I have to see my weaknesses in light of God's grace. And I, I noticed this, that the enemy is constantly trying to get me to focus on myself without God. Think about that. Think about every struggle you have right now about yourself. The parts where there's self-loathing or frustration or callousness. Those moments where you bolster yourself up in a pride you know you have no right to. And in all of those moments, don't you realize that what the enemy is trying to do is to get you to think of yourself without God in the equation. And the moment you put God in the equation, everything looks really, really different. The enemy could say, you're a horrible, rotten, nasty, filthy sinner. And if that was all there was to it, how could we not hate that? Hey, is it true that I'm a nasty sinner? Absolutely. But I'm a nasty sinner who's been washed in the blood of Jesus. I am, you can say, well, you're just rubbish. Well, look at me, my life could have been and could have remained absolutely rubbish, but I am so, I am the most loved rubbish on the planet. And I've learned this. I've watched all kinds of creative people take rubbish and turn it into art. My God's gone beyond that. And the moment I start to think of myself, and for the moment, no matter what the situation is, it's a relationship gone awry or it's a circumstance that didn't work out or it's somewhere down the line I thought I would go farther than I did and I didn't or something that I had greater ambition in and it didn't pan out or whatever it is. The moment I put God out of the equation, it's going to get weird and ugly. And what David does is he embraces God's promise in this as he looks and he says, whoa, wait a minute. Who am I in light of you? And who are you in light of that? And who are your people as a result? And I noticed that the moment I recognized how loved and cared for and provided for and protected and engulfed in the grace of this God, the more I can look at you and love you. Because it's not about me taking care of me anymore. I don't have to. 
I simply obey what God calls me to, and the rest works out in the wash. But what if, I mean, I don't want to stop here, but, but what if we really kind of pondered that for a moment? We really pondered, how much of me do I think about that doesn't involve God? That really doesn't have God as the essential factor in the equation. You know what's amazing? Without God, I could be brought to tears for hating myself. But with God, I could be brought to tears for being so thankful that he would love me. And the nastier and the more realistically I view myself, now I'm not talking about really self-deprecating, but I'm talking about just being honest. But the more I see that in the light of God, the more I actually appreciate his grace. I don't hate myself more. I love him more for it instead. So we go then, if you think about it, from David's condition, a place of safety, to David's ambition, wanting to pull God close and park him there permanently, to God's provision, it was God's job to pull him in, to David's decision that he isn't going to actually just look and go, hey, you didn't give me what I really wanted here, but instead David is actually going to go and result in praise because he realizes God always will have a better plan, and if I focus on the, the what I think is the no, I won't actually see the plan he has instead. But then we go then to this chapter, which is in essence David's mission. And I'd like you to consider this, and you can see why I needed to get into this as we prepare for this chapter, because the chapter really is going to be seven military promises, or if you will, seven military victories. And as I look at that, I realize David's mission is presupposed upon it because I look at the first two words of the chapter, and that is after this. After David giving rest, wants to build a house, but God says, I'll build you a house instead. David results in praise. And what God says is, I'm going to give you a legacy. The world is going to be changed because of you. Well, because of me with you. So think about this. David in the situation right now is so clear on this legacy. What he's promised then is such a future that for the moment, David would appear to be invincible and invulnerable to the world. So what would you do? What would you do if you knew that nothing could touch you, that you knew that God was going to really impact the world and he was going to use you to do so, so you knew you weren't going to die in a night? What would you do? Now, what's interesting is we had to talk, a few of us guys around the table around dinner, and we thought, what if we were invincible? What would we do? And there were a couple of us that are kind of crazy people that we would just... We do. We just do anything crazy we could. We jump off of buildings. We, I mean, you know, just just to just to see. I mean, the first time through it would be scary as anything. Then we kind of get them and go, whoa, that was kind of like Groundhog Day. We're like, whoa, I guess I'm okay after all. You know, there's something about it. But then somewhere down the line, where do we actually attach that again to God? Because I'm looking at myself again without Him, and I attach it to Him, and I'm realizing, well, if 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 I could impact eternity, and God has actually given me this place of being invulnerable or inconquerable by anything else, then would I go into the darkest place or the seemingly darkest or the scariest place and just go in and we were talking about just walking into one of those horrible clubs and just kind of scratching off the record and be like, yo, 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 everyone, hold on a second, peep this. Y'all need to hear this. Y'all need Jesus. Maybe you wouldn't say it that way. You might like, excuse me, but you might need Jesus. But however you want to say it, the bottom line is, would you do that? Would it motivate you to go to those places that you'd go, oh, you know, because if God were to call our bluff and we're like, well, I don't want to go there. I don't know if I want to share in that situation, even though I feel the prompting of God upon my heart. Because if I go there, I could get roughed up. Things could get really bad. And God goes, well, I'll call your bluff. I'll make you invincible. Now go. Would you go then? Or is God really calling our bluff and showing us just that we don't want to do it like Moses? Interesting, what we're going to find now as we get into the text is that David, in response to God's promise, goes on the offensive. Basically, God's like, I'm going to give you a legacy and I'm going to build a kingdom from your son. I'm going to build you a house and you're going to, it's going to have this eternal throne and this eternal kingdom. And what David says is, well, if it's going to be an eternal kingdom, I want it to be as big as it can be. I want to touch as many lives as I can here. Of course, in David's case, that's going to be a lot more military, a lot more martial. But for us, our martial attack, we have only one massive attack weapon, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And the moment we start wielding that, people start getting rescued from hell. David will take a kingdom that is roughly 6,000 square miles and bring it to a place of just about 60,000 square miles. That's a really big advance because he grabbed a hold of God's promise and he believed it. To give you an idea, today, Israel as a nation is 8,020 square miles. 8,000. David brought it to 60,000. Get the idea. Before 1967, it was only 5,500 square miles. So consider the radical difference. Now, all the way back in the book of Genesis 15, we see it in Joshua 1 as well, God had actually promised the territory, really, to be honest, about 62 to 70,000 square miles. And it has never but once even been remotely close to it. And that is during the kingdom of David. Well, and if you will, his son Solomon is the, if you will, sort of the drip off of that. But for the most of the time, Israel has been something, if Israel were a state in the United States, Israel as a nation would only be, I think it still would be like the 10th state as far as its size, the 10th smallest state. And I look at this and I realize that Israel, it's, the UK is larger than Israel. It gives you an idea. So here it is. I better get into our text, right? But I want to start with this. God has given you this promise. And you know the promise, but do you apply it to anything reasonable? Romans chapter 8, verse 37, when it says, We are more than what? You know it, conquerors in him who loved us. Now, that's not saying go and throw yourself in harm's way. Well, I'm just going to go to preach to everyone on the train, so I'm going to jump on the tracks. The train will move out of my way. Well, don't be dumb. But what he does say is that hell can't win if you belong to Jesus. Jesus promised the gates of hell would not prevail. And we're promised in 1 John that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So what part of this makes us freak out about the, part, the powers of hell? You know what happened? We've been getting too much of our doctrine from Hollywood and getting too little of it from the Bible. There's the problem. Let's face it. You, won't, you watch a movie, you have a, an experience you read the Bible, it's a discipline. You just don't even realize the spiritual experience you're having. Because, you know, there's not explosions. Well, there are, but you just have to, you know, see them in your mind's eye. It isn't. Hopefully your Bible's not blowing up in front of you. So here it is. Are you ready? Chapter picks up rather quick in this. Chapter 8, verse 1. And it came to pass. See, and we did all of that were because of the words after this. It came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Methed Amach from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off how those to be put to death. And with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rechov, king of Zobah. And he went to recover his territory at, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. Now, this is how it starts. Now, God could have just said, let's be honest, God could have said, and David went, went a conquering, and this is the end of it. But God takes special note of these specific places, and, these, and in some cases, he even lists the names of the kings. And why would God do that? Now, you have to know, for me, I like to take a walk with a text like this, and I realize with these first three specifically, which are specifically noted, and then God starts to clump it, there's something really interesting. We have, in the first case, in verse 1, we have the Philistines. In verse 2, we have Moab. And then in verse 3, we have Zobah. Now, on your handouts, you will actually see on the song list on the other side a map that can help you find them if you want to play Where's Wally on that. But let me just say this. God started with this. The first place, I should say David, started with this. Now receiving this promise of God, the first thing he does is he goes after the Philistines. Now, for what it's worth, I remind you, Philistine means immigrant is what it means. It means foreigner, not from here. Which is always interesting because you're aware that Philistine is the original word for that gets sort of adopted in time to the word Palestine or Palestinian comes from the word Philistine. It was used as a slam upon Israel when it was actually named the land of, of Philistine, or I'm sorry, the land of Palestine, because it was, in essence, sort of an Anglican way of, of saying the word Philistia. 
But what's ironic is you have the Hebrews and the Palestinians arguing over territory. And Hebrew means one from beyond. And Palestinian or Palestine means foreigner arguing over land. Isn't that something a little odd to you? We've got one from beyond and not from around here arguing over land saying it's theirs. And unless the proper owner of the land bequeaths it to someone, well, then no one has a right to it. But that's the whole point of the Bible, at least in regards to the covenant God made with Abraham. So here's the first of them. David takes this place, and he takes this place called Metheg Amah. Metheg Amah, by the way, is the gate. It literally means, if you will, the brightened, the measured bridle. And, and it's sort of like what limits your entrance is the idea in this. And, and he says, in regards to this, this is, it's the gate to Gath, by the way. So it is, in essence, the gateway. And either you're on one side or the other. And I look at this and I start to look at these three places. And again, I'm asking to apply it to my own life as well. And the first thing I recognize is that when David goes on the offensive, if I were to embrace God's promises and I went on the offensive, perhaps the first place I would go after is my addiction to the world. That place where I refuse to see myself as the foreigner I actually am. Now here it's a little easier. Now I can certainly adopt a manner of speech and I've been in places, certainly, where actually, to be honest, people didn't know I was the American that I am. And granted, it's a lot more than the way I speak. We're aware of that. The moment I barbecue, everyone in my neighborhood knows I'm not from around here. But I've been in places where we've had, you know, we've, it's sort of a late night, and I'm sitting there reading my Bible, and, and, some, and a true story, and I'm on a train, and a couple of drunk people come in, and they're loud and obnoxious and, and very, very... East Coast American kind of thing where they've got that kind of really sharp manner of speech. And I've had the person turning to me next to me and going, <coughs> Americans. Like, oh, I know. You know. And the only reason I said, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to diss it. The only reason I'm saying that is, is that it's easy to align yourself with someone when they're actually dissing someone else. But I love this, one of these verses that really, really impacts me is Psalm 84 verse 5 when it says blessed is the man whose strength is in you whose heart is set on pilgrimage it's like how often do I live in the reality that this world is only my hotel room I mean, I know that intrinsically in the back of my head, but how many decisions do I make based on the fact that there is an eternity I'm going to be accountable for versus just trying to get comfortable in the place I'm at right now? And I look at this and I realize that when David went to the first thing, the first place he went was to this area of immigration, if you will. And to the gate, and God made special note that it was the place where people immigrated into uh, and by the way, into the place where the giant Goliath came from, Gath. And I realized, where do I really, when, if the, the horn was blown, where do I really want to stand? With the majority, or do I really want to stand with God's people? <coughs> because truth be told, that was the first thing. David embraced God's promise, and that was the first thing he went after. Now, God has promised me a legacy, not just with you, not just with the fellowships we've come from, but with my children as well. And because of that, I embrace that. And one of the first things I want to know is, I mean, moving to a place like this, it's clear we could try to just blend in. But I don't want to blend in. What I want to do is, is I want people to know about Jesus. And let's face it, if I want people to know about Jesus, I'm not going to be the average Londoner. Let's just be honest. So I have a choice to make. What's going to be more important? Well, it goes from there to Moab. Now, let me give you one other verse, by the way, just to kind of put things on there. In Psalm 119, verse 54, it says, Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Now, in, chapter, in verse 2, it tells us he defeated Moab. Now, this is a little strange at first, because I remind you, David's great-grandmother was a woman named Ruth. And do you remember where Ruth was from? She was from Moab. As a matter of fact, when David started to flee from Saul, if you remember, his parents met him at the cave of Adullam, and then David took his parents and dropped them off in Moab. Which then would be, in essence, dropping them off, I could have said he dropped them off at their grandmother's house if she were still alive. And yet, in all of that, why is David going after them now? 
Somewhere in between that and now, Moab has openly declared war on Israel. And that's not an uncommon thing. Now, the area of Moab and Edom, that's all the area of Jordan today, to give you an idea. The area of the, of the, of the Philistines, for the most part, that's sort of the Gaza Strip as we know it today. That area on the coast, just south of Tel Aviv. Now, for what it's worth, I do find it interesting. The term Moab, for what it's worth, literally means like dad. And forgive me for telling why, but it is kind of important for our text. In Genesis chapter 19, Lot has just fleed Sodom and Gomorrah. He had fled it for a little town called Zobah because he couldn't get too far away. He wanted to get far away enough that he could escape while God then poured forth his judgment. His wife went with him and his two daughters. As his wife and daughters went with him, his wife, as you know, turns to look back. And as she turns to look back, she's not going any farther. And what's left then is Lot and his two daughters, and they hide in a cave. As they hide in a cave, and I remind you, these are girls raised in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what they knew. They went to Sodom and Gomorrah schools. They watched Sodom and Gomorrah television shows. That's kind of the idea. You know, they sang Sodom and Gomorrah songs. And the only reason I say that is now they think the whole world is ended because their whole world is ended by Sodom and Gomorrah. They're in a cave and it's the two girls and dad. And the girls are like, looks like we have to pull a Noah. You know that whole idea we have to repopulate the world? And again, forgive me, this is weird. We agree. This isn't God applauding and he's telling us the truth. And in this, the daughters then look and say, we're going to actually have to get impregnated by dad so that we can start the world all over again. The oldest gets pregnant and she has a boy and names him like dad. It's kind of weird, isn't it? And then the second has a, has a son and names him Loami, or Loami, and literally he becomes the father of the Ammonites, another perennial enemy of Israel for what it's worth. Now, with all of that said, I get the idea as I look at this and I realize that Moab for David would have meant the same thing, not that weird and perverted, but in a sense it was a place of familiarity. And I start to look at this and I realize the second thing David went after was his death grip on affirmation. Now, I mean, the first thing he went after was his addiction to the world. But the second thing is he kind of looked and he realized that, oh, my goodness, you know, if, if I just wanted approval from my brothers, I would never have become king. If I really wanted approval from mom and dad, would I really gone the route I wanted to go here? And somewhere down the line, you have to choose your family. You have to decide for yourself whether what you really want to be is like your dad. Or what you really want to be. And look at sometimes that's a good thing. If it's someone that is a good example, but most of the time you kind of look and go, you know, to be honest, I'm not talking about difference in personality. But the moment we give our life to Christ... Was the, the, we get adopted by our Heavenly Father. And my prayer is that every one of us wants to become like Dad. But if the best you could become like is your dad on earth, you're still, a, at best, a copy of a poor model. Versus becoming like our Heavenly Father, that's perfection. And it's like, my desire is to become like that. And David, by the way, he draws lines. Now, I'm assuming he's not killing everyone in Moab, but the army. The army that would have gone after him, he draws a line. Two-thirds of them are executed, and what's left then is the one-third. And then Moab is a city, serves him. Moab is a country, serves him. Then he goes after a guy named Hedadezer. Hedadezer, by the way, means my mighty help. He's the son of a man named Rechov, which means my way. And he's the king of a place that means my station, or this is where I am, kind of the idea. I've set myself up this way. And station, by the way, means a lot to us here. If you go back a couple hundred years ago or you sort of take a quick dance through any of Jane Austen's films, you know, station's everything. The idea of it is, where is your station in life? And the reason I say that is in the third case, he goes after somebody, now he goes heads towards the north in this, and he takes it all the way to the area of the River Euphrates. Now, in the, in the Chronicles, what we read is David was enhancing this area, and as he was enhancing this area, he came across to the desert, and then they had the battle as a result of it. But God had promised Israel the territory all the way to the river Euphrates, which, by the way, that's Iran-Iraq today, all the way back in Genesis 15 and Joshua 1. So that was property that God had granted all the way back then, that only David and his kingdom and his son's kingdom would actually ever see. And I look at this for a moment and I start to look and I realize it started with my realizing the pilgrimage that I'm on and going from that to stop seeking affirmation from worldly places, but rather to seek to be a pleasure to my heavenly father to this place to stop relying on my own personal strength. 
my way, my strength, my station, for my elevation, for you to think I'm awesome. And the moment I start to see these things defeated, I start seeing all kinds of victory in my own life. And David goes after, now granted, these are literal battles and literal places, but God makes special mention of these names for a reason. Did he have to tell us that Hadadezer had a dad named Rechov? Like, like any of us are ever going to know that and find it really important on a test. It isn't like we're going to stand before God and God goes, before I let you in, one last question, who is the father of Hadadezer? And if you have the answer, Rechov, then tell him you went to Shoreline Calvary Chapel. Anyway, now, the whole point of it is that God wants to make mention of these places, and I do believe it's because he really wants to see that we today are not going to go out and try to take on Scotland or going to take on France or, or Italy and say we're going to go enhance God's kingdom. We could advance the kingdom by preaching the gospel. But the battle starts, by the way, by our hearts really being in the place where it's like, you know what, if I really want to see God's kingdom aggrandized, well, it has to start with me not stop trying to actually attach myself to the world and just make friends with everybody. Because I know that when I preach the gospel, I will actually be the friend I should be to others. But there'll be other people that, you know, we'd say, I'm going to make an enemy there. But truth be told, if they wouldn't let us share Jesus, they are already an enemy. We just don't know it. And there's the danger. If somebody doesn't want you to shine your light and you're like, I'm afraid if I shine the light, they'll actually not be my friend. Well, they're not being your friend already. There's the danger in it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have him as an associate, but somewhere down the line, I realize, as an associate, I am guarding myself from their influence. Well, David goes and he starts on the warpath, and as he does, every place he goes, he wins. Verse 4. It says, So David took with him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servant and brought tribute. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. This statement will be said twice in this chapter. And please, please hear me. When I truly decide this is not my home, when I truly decide who is my real family, And I truly decide there is only one way, and it's not my strength or my way, but it's God's way. Then I should expect old allegiances to rise up and challenge that. The moment you really decide you're going to really be full on for Jesus, that person you had the crush on calls you out of the blue and says, Hey, I'm going to the club tonight. And you know you shouldn't be there. The person that actually you've always wanted to be friends with all of a sudden starts to hang out with you and then they and you know that you're going to have to go undercover with this Jesus thing because they're really going to you'll be out of the party in a moment. And you realize in this. This whole Damascus experience happened. Because had a desert went down and as a head of desert went down and I remind you that means my strength or my help. When that started to go down, other things came up and said, well, who do you think you are? To the aid of Hadadezer. As a result of that, David has to battle them. And I love this because ultimately, we'll read in Psalm 20, verse 7, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Now, don't miss this because the way that you teach in poetry is you either do it by contrast or by comparison. And, and it's like, it's either this is just like this, Jesus does it a lot with parables, or this is the opposite of this. And what he says is, this is the way the world trusts. They trust with horses and chariots. We might say today, they trust today with bombs and with submarines or with that, whatever. He goes, but we're going to trust in what? What's the, in verse 20, let me read it again. You tell me what David's weapon is. Some trust in Harriet's and, uh, Harriet's, <laughs> Harriet's. Some trust in chariots. And some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So what was David's weapon? The name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. There's only one name given among men by which we must be saved. And this is why people have such a problem with the name Jesus, because it is a weapon. Now, it isn't like we take Jesus out and we start beating people with it. That's not the point. 
The point is, is the weapon is used in the sense that we claim the name of Jesus and we go into territories the enemy has established for the purpose of rescuing those now taken captive and held hostage by the enemy. But we go in fearlessly because we're more than conquerors and him who loved us. So, I start looking at this and I start realizing that as we go into the rest of this text, David is starting to gather an awful lot of stuff. Now, I have to read this first from Deuteronomy 17 because God told them before they ever entered into the promised land how important it was that there were four specific requirements for any king that was to be a king over Israel. So listen to this for a moment, if you would. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 says, When you come into the land in which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren. You shall set a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. First, he has to be a Jew. Fair enough. Verse 16, he says then, number two, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. So, first, got to be Jewish. Second, don't gather horses for himself. Third, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest they turn his heart away. Fourth, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be then, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law, that would be the Torah, in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with them. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers but that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom he and his children in the midst of Israel. Now don't miss this. What God said was these are the things you want. First of all, he's got to be Jewish. But then he says, well, the easiest thing for me to think is, well, he shall not amass horses and chariots. He shall not amass wives, but he shall not amass um, gold and silver. But you're, there's a whole other point to it that we could miss, because all three of them have the same modifier at the end. He shall not multiply horses and chariots for himself. He shall not multiply wives for himself. He shall not multiply gold and silver for himself. Now, the wife's thing, you shouldn't just be multiplying them anyways. But the reason I say that is, well, what happens when a person gets blessed financially? Or what happens when a person gets blessed in a military sense or whatever? Obviously, it's the idea. David here has gotten horses. He's gotten chariots, as we saw. But notice David hamstrung. Now, what that means is that the horses could still walk. They just couldn't run. So they were no threat anymore in a military sense. But they could still pull plows. Now, Regardless of where you are on you know, the sort of animal cruelty thing, that's obviously at the point. The point was David as a king was trying to keep the nation safe. The point is that David's gathering a lot of stuff, but he's not sinning. And we'll see why here in a moment. Because he's actually not gathering them for himself. However, his son Solomon, that will be the downfall. God makes careful note that Solomon breaks every one of these rules, except for the being Jewish part, can't help that. But in regards to the things that he's not to do, Solomon will actually amass for himself wives and, uh, and gold and silver, but also he will actually go to Egypt to get horses. I mean, you'd think, even if you were going to try to amass horses for yourself, go anywhere but Egypt, because it's the one place God said, don't go. Well, you get the point. So David is gathering, and what we get out of this now, look at verse 7. David took the shields of gold that belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, and also from Batah, which means security for what it's worth, and Berotai, which means Cyprus, cities of Hadadezer, David took a large amount of bronze. When Toi, or actually it's Tui, Wander, king of Hamat, which means fortress, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toi said Yoram, his son to King David, to greet him, to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. So Hadadezer had been at war with Toi. So now you got this guy that had been, in essence, bullied by Hadadezer. David destroys Hadadezer, if you will. So you can imagine this guy's like, well, you are my best friend. And he sends his son named Yoram. And Yoram means Yah, or God, is exalted. Now who names their kid that? 
especially when you're actually talking about a guy that's not Jewish. He's like, so here's this guy getting beat up by Hadadezer up in the north, and Hadadezer gets defeated, and this guy sends his son, and he's like, wow, you really, thank you. Thank you so much for taking down the bully at the school. It's kind of the idea. So with that, now notice, David now doesn't have to amass these things. These guys are showing up with these gifts. Now, what do you think David's going to do with it? Now, listen, 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 because this shows the heart of person that actually the end result is to please God, not just to get something done. Because what David wanted in building the house for God was to please God. And God said, well, you're not going to build it. Someone else is. David, instead of pouting and having his pity party, decides instead to amass these things to make it easier for the guy who's going to do it. Because David's heart still is to see the place built, but if he can't build it, he's going to make it easier for the guy who can. Because what seems clear to David is it's not about David, it's about God. And you watch people, you know, you can talk, I get them, of course, because we're here, technically we're called missionaries. I would call myself a passionary because I'm a sort of a pastor of missionary. But, But in that, people are like, oh, I just really wish I could be involved in the mission field out there in England. I'm like, you can help sponsor And that sounds horrible, but you get the idea. And it's like, no, I just want to be there myself. Well, I get it. But I know as a pastor that there are places in the world where the best thing we could do is not be there, but really help take care of someone else that actually is doing the work there and doing it effectively. Now, here, David, he sees that there is an opportunity and God has made the promise. He's so banked on God's promise, he's going to make it easier for the guy who can. And what God's done is he's honored that by actually having other people show up. It isn't like David has in his diary, oh, by the way, I'm going to get this sort of son of a guy named Toy showing up today. And he's going to actually, you know, give me a whole bunch of stuff. I imagine that had to be quite a surprise to David, wouldn't you think? And how cool is that? Like David, if you will, he's kind of, he's been fighting these battles. And in all of these battles, there he is. And this guy just sort of shows up and goes, hey, thank you for taking down this guy. Who, by the way, tried to pick a fight with David and clearly lost. So it says that Joram brought with him articles of silver, gold, and articles of bronze. Verse 11 says, King David also dedicated these to the Lord. Now notice the also. So what did David do with all of this stuff? He, Kadesh. Kadesh means to be set apart as holy. Everything that David took and received, he set apart and dedicated as holy unto the Lord. And that's the difference. Is that when the Lord blessed him, he just said, God, this is yours. Put it where you want to put it. And if it is, and, and because David's heart was to build God a house and he couldn't, he's like, well, clearly that's the first place it's going to go. So imagine when Solomon shows up, Solomon's going to get the blueprints from dad and all the building materials from dad. They're already there. It's like the thing's almost prefab by the time that Solomon gets it. And that's a guy with a tremendous amount of wisdom. So that kind of worked out really well. So hear me, and we're almost done now. David dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations that he had subdued. And then we have the list of the seven here in verse 12. Syria, Moab, the people of Ammon. I can remind you, that's the other son of Lot. Excuse me. From the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Notice again, he's telling us whose son he is and what area he's from. David made himself a great name. When he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians at the Valley of Salt, that's south of the Dead Sea. He also put garrisons in Edom, that's now southern Jordan. Towards Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And notice again, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Now the word preserved in both cases here in verse 14 and in verse 6 is the word Yeshua or Yeshu the word we get Jesus from. And what we find is that God saved him everywhere he went. He delivered him everywhere he went. And hear me on this, Christians. As I look around the room, I recognize, I believe I've spoken to every one of you in this room, and you've made a personal claim to Christ, and you've told me that. David, as our example here, will always be safer in the battlefield of advance than in the coasting comforts of his own palace. The place of David's greatest challenge will be in the dangers of the comfort that David will have in his palace. And they will infinitely outweigh the bullets of advancement that David will have to face in the battlefield. 
And here's the thing. If we think the greatest danger is on the battlefield where the gospel is to be preached, where people are to respond to it and lives are to be saved, then what we'll do is instead we'll shack up on our palaces. And you know what will happen when we shack up on our palaces? They become jail cells for us. Because now we're kind of in our little room and we don't do anything and we don't want to affect anyone and we're too afraid of the world around us. And there we're already living in defeat at that point. And God is so much more for every one of us. And David, what we're going to find is it's only going to take a few chapters before David's really going to be, spoiler alert, he's going to fall hard. And the reason is because David isn't on the advance like he should be. As a matter of fact, it'll tell us it was the season when the kings went out to war, but David wasn't in battle. Ironically, there was a battle to be fought and David wasn't actually out there. His commander was, but David wasn't. The biggest battle David will lose in all of his life will never be on that battlefield, but the battlefield of his own heart when he's comfortable because he's not where he should be. And you know, we can become, every one of us can become spiritually agoraphobic. We're afraid of the outside world and we're afraid that the world out there is out to get us and we're like so small and it's so big, but you know what you're doing again? And I do it too, is you look at yourself without God as the essential factor in the equation. And the moment I look at me without God as the essential factor in the equation, the world will always look bigger because it is bigger than me. It's just not bigger than him. And David says, I'm going to go to battle. And as I go to battle, I tell you what, as I go to battle, God, you'll take care of it, right? Because you've given me this promise. I can't die yet. So he goes to battle. And then he goes to battle and he goes to battle. And God is constantly preserving him because of that. And I'm going to challenge you with this as we go to our last few verses and pray. God wants you on the advance. Now look at, there are moments where you go into the mash unit. Now the mash unit is the place because you've gotten hit somewhere and you need to go and you need to heal. And I know in the ministry there are moments where something blindsides you. You've opened your heart to someone and they turn out to actually, you get hit and you get hit hard. But please understand, the mass unit is always a temporary structure for a reason. It is a place to heal, to go back out. And But somewhere in that place, there's got to be someone that has that song and the, the fife and the drum still in their heart that says, get me back in there. <coughs> there's some people who never wanted to be on the field, so they want to fake that injury so they can get off and try to not look so ignoble for it. But there's always somebody that goes, man, I just want to be out there. I want to be advancing. I want to do something with this. And, and let me just say, I know what it's like to get blindsided. I know what it's like to get the carpet pulled. I know what it's like to all of a sudden find the floor. And I know how comfortable it can be at that moment to get healed. But to get healed is to get healed to get back out, not to get healed so that we could learn how to become an invalid. And somewhere down the line in all of that, we'll never actually be have, the, have that courage again to get out into the victory until we do get out there in the first place. And the moment we hear that first bullet whizzing by, metaphorically, we're freaking out. But somewhere down the line, you get your rhythm back again and you go, all right, let's get back out there and let's do this. Because the moment the enemy can get you really loving the cot of the mash unit, you'll never be the threat you should be. Well, with that in mind, what we find is in our last verses, David now has an administration. He sets up shop. As he sets up shop, we have these guys. And I love their names, by the way. God mentions them here. We have Joab. David reigned over Israel. David administered judgment and justice. And what that meant was that he punished the guilty and he took care of and protected the innocent. Don't miss that. Proper, you know, if you will, proper legislation, if you will, proper judgment is to, in essence, to punish the guilty and to protect the innocent. And let's be honest. We know we've read of cases and we've seen cases where the innocent can often be more punished than the guilty. And the guilty, we've, there's all kinds of rights groups to make sure that the guilty party doesn't get overpunished, so to speak. But how many groups are really out there for the victims? Well, with that said, here's what he has. Joab's the first in verse 16. His name means Father God. He's the son of a guy whose name means Balm uh, Zuriah, who's over the army. 
Jehoshaphat, which means God judges or has judged, is the son of Ehilud, which means brother child. I don't know how that works. He was his recorder. Zadok, which means righteous, is the son of Ahitub, which means good bro, good brother. And Ahimelech, brother king, the son of Abiatar, great father, were priests. Now notice in verse 17 the nerm, the nerm, the nerm, notice the nerm, notice the name Zadok. Zadok will be then the person from which the family of the Zadokites would come. And when you take Zadokite and turn it into Greek, you get the term Sadducee. That's where it comes from is this guy here in verse 17. And we have this guy, Sariah, the end of verse uh, 17, was the scribe. Now, you wouldn't want to actually be the sister of Sariah because then you would be called Sariasis. Oh, anyways, okay. Sorry, that was bad. Uh, Sariah, by the way, means God is my ruler. Thanks, Dad. Uh, Beniah, one of my favorite names, means God does the building. Isn't that a great name, by the way, considering the, what David's building on? And this guy will become ultimately David's right-hand man. I mean, the guy Joab will actually defect by the end of David's life. He will turn out to be quite a bit of a problem, we're going to find. But this guy, Beniah, is tried and true. And he is the son of a guy named Yehoiada. And Yehoiada means God knows, or we might say God only knows. So they ask, well, what's, the, what's your kid's name? Oh, God only knows. Uh, he was over two groups, the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Now, when was the last time you met a Cherethite? Chances are, if you did, you'd be in trouble. A Cherethite, the name means executioners. So if you ran into one of those, chances are it would be a rough thing. And then the Pelethites mean the swift ones. Now, might I say it this way? In the simplest sense, these two guys are... It's most likely, and I think the way that most people kind of view it, is that they kind of see these guys as, if you will, kind of the, kind of like the SWAT team or the Navy SEALs or the Delta Force or what do we call them here? I should probably have the, a good British name for that. The SAS. Yeah, SAS. Okay, that's cool, right? Um, the most of. In Mossad in uh, in Israel. I mean, they're you know they're the guys. I mean, let's face it. What do you send? You send the swift guys and the executioners. They're the guys that go in first. There's the idea. And who is over? Let's face it. If there's any group that's a potential loose cannon, wouldn't it be those guys? So the guy that's over them, you better. He's going to have to be strong. He's going to have to have clear vision, and he's going to have to be someone you really trust. Because you get that guy in your bad side, and you have a swift guy and an executioner showing up in your bedroom at night. Not a good idea. And that becomes one of David's most trusted men, Benaiah, who is, again, remind you, his name means God does the building or God builds. But the last verse, which takes us out in it, it ends with this. And David's sons were chief ministers. The chapter ends with David building on God's promise and wanting to make this more than just a government. He wants to make this a family business. He wants his family involved. He could have just said, all right, you kids, I want you here for photo ops. So I guess in those days, for a good chisel and for a good painting. But in the end of it all, you know, make your public appearances. Uh, we'll, we'll christen a you know, couple of boats or whatever. Um, christen, but, however, but, but in the end of it all, you really don't need them. And David's like, look, I want you guys in this with me. I want you guys out there. Let's, let's see how great it is to defend the widow, to defend the orphan, to help protect the victim, and to punish the wicked so that the, the world around us knows that this is a real place that has real, honest, true law and tr proper judgment. So you guys, let's get to work. Now as we go to prayer now, let me just challenge you as I want to be challenged myself. When was the last time you really thought you were on the offensive? No, I'm not talking about being offensive, like you burped on someone. But I'm talking about on the, because some of you, I know that could have been 20 minutes ago. Uh, when was the last time, though, you were like, you had such a heart? Well, let me just say it this way. When was the last time you just felt like you were on the offensive with someone about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Chances are it happened because somewhere down the line, God spoke to you. You embraced his word. You embraced his promise. And then you had a real heart for someone. And you're like, you know what? That person needs to know Jesus. I cannot possibly claim to love someone and not want them going to heaven. 
And I don't know how many people may be having the opportunity to tell them the truth, but I know, I know the truth, and I want them to know it. And so I want to pray as a dangerous prayer for every one of us, that God jolt us out of the comfort of our palaces and put us in this place where we'd go on the offensive. Because I guarantee you, if you are following the Lord onto the battlefield, he will preserve you wherever you go. Now, that doesn't mean someone might not get in your face or anything like that. But what it does mean is he's going to bring you out with great spoil. And isn't that what we really want? Is to see the world changed. But he's going to have to change the world in us so that he can use us to change the world around us. So I want to pray that. But I want to remind you, Jesus came into our world without compromise He met us right where we were at, but he never in any way ever downplayed his holiness. But he made himself accessible. And as he made himself accessible, he died on the cross for our sins because it needed to happen or we would go to hell. Somebody had to save us. And the only one equipped to do that had to be perfect. And the one qualified did the work died on the cross, just like Scripture promised, was buried and rose again on the third day. And now that truth is the power of salvation for anyone who would believe. And you have it to give. And my prayer is now that God would ignite us to go out and watch people saved. Do you want to see people saved? I do. Then be a part of it. You can't save anyone, but you could keep them from you could keep yourself from being a part of it. Give them the gospel, give them a choice. Jesus died for your sins, just like Scripture promised, was buried on the third day, rose again, just like Scripture promised. He was seen by a lot of people, and he wants to be the Lord and Savior of your life. And even if that doesn't make sense to you, the Holy Spirit will still convince you. That's what Scripture says. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So I just need to be true with the message. And so you have a choice to make. Do you want to say yes to this Jesus? And when someone says yes, try not to go, really? And all of a sudden you start to realize people get saved. And when they do, God starts to implant within this desire to know him better because they've met him now. There's certainly people I've met that the moment I met them, I'm like, I got to get to know that person better. But no one like Jesus. So as we pray... My prayer is today, even if you're in that place where God is healing you, know this. The mass unit is not your permanent home. It is a temporary place for you to be strengthened again, to get back out on the field, however he calls you to. And do it. And watch God change lives. Pray with me, would you please? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for how you've met us here. I want to thank you for the way that you've called us to a deeper and more meaningful relationship. And I thank you for David's example. As you have replaced his small picture with an infinitely larger, broader picture that surpasses the moment and surpasses a generation to affect eternity. And in that, David has embraced that, and then he went on the war path. And Lord, for us, you certainly don't call us out there to do anything violent to anything but the kingdom of hell. And by that, we preach the gospel. And the, and the light, Lord, that you've made us to be crushes and shatters the darkness around us. So Lord, our kingdom, we recognize, isn't of this world, and therefore we're not physically fighting but rather we're preaching the gospel and we recognize there is a spiritually violent opposition to that truth for clear reason because the enemy knows how dangerous that information is. And there is a world out there starving for hope and we're the only ones that have any hope that transcends the moment. So God, I pray right now for every one of us, you ignite us Set us on fire for you. And in doing so, Lord, give us such a love for you and such a clarity of your promises that we would grab a hold of those promises and go on the offensive. And I pray even tonight and even tomorrow, you put someone in our path where we could just be simple and to lay out, this is the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, all like scripture promised. 
and now demands to be the Lord and Savior of their life. And in that, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict and that we would have the privilege of watching people come to know you and that we'd hear stories even next week of those who have said yes, that even right now you're priming and preparing their hearts so that when they do say yes, we could share sweet fellowship with them and challenge them to the battlefield as well. So, Lord, here we are. We are yours confessing Jesus as our Savior, but also as our Lord. And as you recruit us into the family business of seeking, serving, and saving the least, the last, and the lost, make us people who would seek those, the lost, make us people who would serve each other, and make us people, Lord, who would see you save. As we commit ourselves to you now, Lord, send us out. In Jesus' name, amen.